you've heard me talk about the importance of apologetics, Christian evidences, and I think studying dinosaurs and how they fit in with the Bible and the creation account, the book of Genesis, I do believe dinosaurs are in fact a Bible character. You're going to see why here in a moment. But I think this subject is particularly important. One of the reasons I felt compelled to develop and present this information is because dinosaurs have become the poster child for indoctrinating children with the theory of evolution. Dinosaurs are like uh, the gecko to Geico or like the duck is to Aflac. And sadly, Christians often in the past have tried to pretend like dinosaurs didn't exist, ignored uh, dinosaurs, have ignored the questions their children are asking, hoping they would simply go away, or maybe even worse, stated that dinosaurs aren't real and never existed. And I want to tell you, that's not very effective in today's age of the internet, where kids can get on the internet, go to museums where fossils have been reconstructed and see very clearly dinosaurs did exist. And so some kids maybe put two and two together and you undermine your credibility. And they think if mom and dad are wrong about saying something didn't exist that actually did, are they wrong about saying something does exist that maybe doesn't? And the topic of dinosaurs is something your children are going to learn somewhere. They can either learn it from you, the Christian biblical worldview, what the Bible says concerning dinosaurs and creation, or they can learn it from atheistic evolutionists and that evolutionary propaganda, teachers and professors who are going to begin their spill with many millions of years ago. And no animal has captivated man and children more than dinosaurs. In fact, my children already know about dinosaurs and they have clothes and pajamas uh, with dinosaurs on them. You think about television shows. If I can get my slide to advance. Television shows like Barney. Who can forget the big purple dinosaur who bebopped and hopped around stage teaching kids to say please and thank you and pick up their toys? And who can forget that uh, song? I don't know what the right adjective to describe it. And I quoted this song one time when I was presenting uh, this information and I was chastised after the service for quoting Barney in the pulpit. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sing that song and don't blame me later if you can't get that song out of your head, but you think about movies like Godzilla, or the dinosaur movie that came out 15, 20 years ago, Jurassic Park, which was a box office hit when I was in kindergarten or first grade, uh, The Land Before Time, which came out the year I was born, and I watched multiple times in my youth, and a more recent movie, again, geared towards children, The Good Dinosaur, and so not only have dinosaurs been used to make lots of money, They've also been used to spread evolutionary propaganda. And that's kind of ironic and interesting because as we'll see, God used dinosaur-like creatures to impress upon Job his unfathomable power. The very opposite way dinosaurs are used today to undermine belief in God and in special creation. And so we want to take dinosaurs back and use them in the way that God intended them to be used to glorify him. And you'll notice that you won't often find dinosaurs and humans portrayed together in these movies and interacting unless it's a non-fictional or in an unless it's a fictional or mythical setting and that's because according to evolutionary theory dinosaurs went extinct 60 to 70 million years ago long before man has said to have evolved 
uh, roughly two million years ago. And so evolutionists have admitted and been quoted as saying that if you can show evidence that dinosaurs and humans coexisted, you can shake the foundations of evolution. And we're going to shake those foundations for a little while tonight. And so I want to begin by just pointing out that evolutionary teaching concerning dinosaurs stands in direct contradiction to biblical teaching and what the Bible clearly teaches about creation. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter in the Bible, and again, if we can't trust the first chapter in the first book in the Bible, how can we trust anything else? And when you read the creation account, it's clear that God created everything in six literal days. In fact, he created land animals. He created dinosaurs and humans on the exact same day, day six. So obviously, you don't have to do a lot of math to figure out the Bible clearly teaches that dinosaurs and humans coexisted at one time. In fact, Jesus himself says from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That mankind has been around from the beginning of creation since creation week. And again, obviously dinosaurs and humans at one time then had to have coexisted. Exodus 20 verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them is. And so clearly the Old Testament, the New Testament, Jesus Christ himself teaches that humans and dinosaurs had to have coexisted at one time. And so the first obvious question becomes, are dinosaurs mentioned anywhere in the Bible? And if you get out of concordance and look up the word dinosaur, you will not find it anywhere in the Bible. But there's a very obvious and simple explanation for why that is. The word dinosaur was not coined until 1842 almost 2,000 years after the Bible was completed. So obviously you're not going to find the word dinosaur in the Bible when it didn't exist at that time. But we do read of fearfully great reptiles, dinosaur-like creatures throughout the Bible. Job 7 in verse 12 talks about a sea monster. Isaiah 30 in verse 6 talks about a flying, fiery serpent. Job chapter 40, God describes behemoth to Job. Chapter 41, he describes Leviathan, and some have proposed those are mythological creatures. In fact, some footnotes in Bibles say they're mythological, or that behemoth is a hippopotamus, and Leviathan is a crocodile. But when you study the descriptions of those creatures, behemoth is said to shake his tail like a cedar tree. That obviously can't be describing the six to eight inch stubby tail of a hippopotamus. We're told that he is chief in the ways of God. And yet today, there are many animals that still exist that are much larger than a hippopotamus. If you think about all the creation or all the creatures that have ever existed, what creature could better describe being chief in the ways of God concerning the power and might of God than a dinosaur? Additionally, we're told that no man can approach Leviathan and Behemoth, can't tame them in for a long time, we know, even going back to the ancient Egyptians, had fest festivals known as harpooning the hippopotamus. And we know that they also hunted in uh, crocodiles, and that continues even to this day, if you've seen episodes of Swamp People. Leviathan is said to expel fire from his mouth and smoke from his nostrils, which again cannot be describing a crocodile. It says that his underside is impenetrable, by sword and spears and arrows. That obviously is not describing the belly of a crocodile. Psalm 104, verse 26, there goes the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Job 40, verse 15, behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, 
He eats grass like an ox. When you consider the context, what God is telling Job concerning behemoth and Leviathan, he's basically impressing upon Job his sovereignty, his unfathomable power that he knows more than Job knows. He sees more than Job sees. He's basically saying, Job, you don't know everything you think you know. You're not in control. You're not God. He said, where were you when I made this? Do you know how this works and this works and this works? And he lists all these creatures that he had made, including hawks and ostriches and horses, real animals that actually existed. And if behemoth and Leviathan weren't real creatures, then God's argument to Job would have fallen apart. Job could simply say, so what? Those creatures aren't real. And so while, again, we should not expect to find the term dinosaur in the Bible or in legends prior to 1842 because that word did not exist. Greek words meaning fearfully great reptile, yet we do have descriptions of fearfully great reptiles, dinosaur-like creatures in the Bible and in legends all over the world from the beginning of recorded history. And so just like we talked about in our study of the flood, if dinosaurs and humans coexisted at one time, we would expect to find evidence of that historically and physically to confirm and prove that they lived together at one time. You see a quote here, the flood is not the only common remembrance of the world's cultures. They also remember dragons. From England to China, these were a long part of national mythologies. The Indians of North and South America had legends about them. They are written of in Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, Greece, Switzerland, Scandinavia, Ethiopia, Egypt, Persia, Russia, India, and Japan. And you see remarkable similarities throughout the world, independent of each other. We talked about like the flood legends before globalizations throughout human history on nearly every continent. But Antarctica, they talk not only about the flood, they also talk about these fearfully great reptiles, often referred to as dragons, the emblem of imperial China. Herodotus, a respected Greek historian who lived around 450 BC, and Josephus, famous Jewish historian, both write about reptiles with wings. And what better description of a dragon can be found than God's description of Leviathan in Job chapter 41? Evolutionist Mark Norrell admitted that all mythical creatures have real underpinnings in biology. Some dragons were clearly inspired by real-life animals long familiar to the zoological world. There is no doubt that dragons and certain dinosaurs, especially some of the larger predatory types, do exhibit a surprising outward similarity. And so they're saying, essentially, we don't just come up with, in our imagination, mythical creatures without some real underpinning in biology, real animals that actually exist. And so the question becomes, what real animals prompted these dragon legends that are so pervasive throughout time all around the world. Daniel Cohen admits no creature that ever lived looked more like dragons than dinosaurs. Then he goes on to say, we have to assume that dinosaurs died out long before anyone could remember them. We must assume that dinosaurs have nothing to do with dragons. Why must we assume that? He says the problem is time. As far as we know, all the dinosaurs died out over 70 million years ago. That long ago, there were no people on the earth, so who could remember the dinosaurs? Notice again, the problem is not the evidence. The problem is the worldview, the assumptions. Even though the evidence would clearly indicate that dinosaurs and humans coexisted, it would lead us to believe that. We have to assume that can't be the case. That's not true because we are committed to the theory of evolution and evolutionary timelines. So again, the, the problem is not the evidence. The problem is the worldview and the theory of evolution. 
And so not only would we expect to find historical evidence that humans and dinosaurs interacted and coexisted at one time, we would also, like the flood, expect to find physical evidence that confirms and supports that in the form of carvings and drawings. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. We love taking and looking at pictures. Uh, we authenticate our stories through pictures. You, know, we, you have to see this to believe it. So we take pictures to authenticate these stories. When I go to India and describe our travel being hindered or slowed by water buffalo, I take pictures to document that. Monkeys in the wild. And so just like we do that today, they did that long before cameras in the form of carvings and drawings. And we find documentation of human and dinosaur interaction in the form of these pictures, these carvings and drawings. I want to give you a few examples of that. In uh, the overgrown jungles of Cambodia, you have in Southeast Asia, a civilization of Buddhist and Hindu kings that built these stone temples around the 8th to the 13th centuries and around 1186 King built what's known as the Ta Prom which still exists in those overgrown jungles of Cambodia and On these columns of this temple you find uh, depictions of planets people animals and one particular Depiction that's the most fascinating a very convincing representation of a stegosaurus. How did they know what a stegosaurus looked like in 1186? The Carlisle Cathedral, built in the 12th century, contains the tomb of one of its bishops, Richard Bell. The tomb was examined in 2002. There's a narrow brass fillet that goes around that tomb that you can see, and there's animals that we're familiar with in that brass fillet. Two figures in particular are really interesting. You can see there, even atheists and evolutionists and skeptics have admitted they look like what we would describe as long-necked dinosaurs. How do they know what long-necked dinosaurs look like in the 15th century? The Kachina Bridge in southeast Utah, the third largest natural bridge in the world, contains several pictographs which rock experts believe are 500 to 15 years old. They've studied the veneer and determined they are in fact authentic. They believe it's the work of the Anasazi Indians that lived there at that time. You have different pictures of different things like a mountain goat, handprints. You see a human figure there right next to a brontosaurus. It's even more interesting is that they, there's a dinosaur museum 45 miles away with fossils from that area of dinosaurs like that. What a coincidence that you have a picture of these dinosaurs drawn by Anasazi Indians. And in that very area where that picture is found, are fossils of those dinosaurs proving those dinosaurs at one time were in that area. Francis Barnes, an evolutionist and widely recognized authority on rock art of the American Southwest, observed in 1979 there is a petroglyph in Natural Bridges National Monument that bears a startling resemblance to a dinosaur, specifically a brontosaurus with long tail and neck, small head and all. In the late 1800s, an archaeologist by the name of Dr. Samuel Hubbard noticed pictographs in the area of the Grand Canyon. Elephants and ibexes. One shows an elephant striking a man with its trunk. And when we see pictures like that, we assume they saw those animals. They lived with those animals. One pictograph was particularly amazing, as you see here, a picture of a dinosaur standing upright. Dr. Hubbard believed that he had found an ancient drawing of a dinosaur and wrote the fact that some prehistoric man made a pictograph of a dinosaur in the walls of this canyon upsets completely all of our theories regarding the antiquity of man. 
The fact that the animal is upright and balanced on its tail would seem to indicate that the prehistoric artist must have seen it alive. And note, this means an evolutionist. He didn't go with a biblical Christian creation worldview, but the evidence was too convincing. And he said, essentially, the evidence indicates and proves that humans and dinosaurs coexisted. They drew this picture because they saw this dinosaur standing upright with their own eyes. And he said, the evidence completely upsets, shakes the foundation of evolutionary theory regarding the antiquity of man. So not only do we have pictures, we also have figurines created by humans long ago of dinosaurs. The Jolshrug collection in 1945, a German merchant, a hardware merchant named Waldemir Jolshrug found clay pottery and figurines in Mexico. 33,500 figurines were dug up, filled his house. And they show, many of which show dinosaurs, dinosaurs interacting with humans. A writer for the Los Angeles Times visited and wrote an article entitled, Mexico Finds Give Hint of Lost World. Dinosaur statues point to men who lived in age of reptiles. And so you can imagine skeptics' response or only explanation to this is that these must be forgeries. They're not authentic. But even if they were forgeries, they've been shown, documented, dated hundreds of years before dinosaur fossils were found. But even if we assume that they're forgeries and frauds, something very interesting, some of these figurines are sauropod dinosaurs. And they have spikes on their back instead of flat backs. And what's interesting about that is that detail of dinosaur anatomy was not discovered till the 1990s. So even if they were forged in the 1940s, how in the 1940s do they know sauropod dinosaurs had spikes on their backs almost 50 years before that discovery was made? The Ica stones in Ica, Peru, discovered by Dr. Javier Cabrera in the 1930s. 11,000 of these stones, again, showing humans interacting with dinosaurs, riding dinosaurs, hunting dinosaurs, leading them around with ropes. A stone from a tomb excavated in 2001 depicted sauropod dinosaurs and also contained human hair and scalp tissues that helped confirm the evidence of, of age and authenticity of these stones. But again, even if we consider that they're counterfeit, that they were forged in the 1930s. How again did they notice and know that sauropod dinosaurs had spikes on their backs instead of a smooth back? How do they know that detail of dinosaur anatomy that wasn't discovered until 60 years later? And so again, a lot of this controversy, just like the flood, goes back to the age of the earth, the age of humans. How old are dinosaurs? And you think about the Land Before Time movie I mentioned earlier. I watched that movie with my boys a few months ago, and the opening scene of that movie begins long before the monkey, long before you, was the age of the dinosaur. For evolution to be possible, we've talked about how they need so much time because these processes happening by random chance and accident are so impossible. And so Darwin thought in his day 20 million years was enough. Today it's 14 billion years. In fact, they say that that estimate and doubles every 50 years so in 50 years it might be 28 billion years because again you need this mythical marriage between mother nature and father time to try to explain evolution and so i want to look at a few more examples in support of the young earth that relate specifically to dinosaurs according to evolutionists dinosaur bones are at least 60 to 70 million years old that's when dinosaurs supposedly went extinct but in 2005 paleontologists were stunned to find soft tissue in a t-rex fossil and they found soft tissue and other 
dinosaur fossils since then, described as highly fibrous and flexible. They were even able to squeeze round, dark red substances from the blood vessels. How could something that's said to be 60 to 70 million years old contain soft tissue? They have done carbon-14 dating on dinosaur bones found near Grand Junction, Colorado, indicating they're around 10,000 years old, not millions of years old. If these bones were 60 plus million years old, you should find no detectable amounts of carbon-14 in them. Yet we do find carbon-14 in dinosaur bones, in coal and diamonds and all these objects said to be millions of years old. And since I've mentioned these dating systems, I wanna say a few things about them. The reason that they continue to embarrass themselves by dating objects that are known to be 200 years old, that's 20 million years old, is because these dating systems are flawed by these assumptions related to uniformitarianism that we talked about last time, that these processes and rates are constant, have never changed. The key to understanding the past is understanding the present. I want to mention these assumptions that plague these dating methods. Number one, the rate of decay has always been the same. We've talked about that. Radioactive dating, for instance, uses the rate of decay of different known elements to calculate the age of an object like a rock based on how much of that element is in the rock and that rate of decay. But the assumption is that the rate has never changed. Think about watching a person cut down a tree. You all do that in your area. We don't do that here. But suppose you see a guy cutting down a tree and you observe for an hour, he cut down one tree and you see 10 trees lying on the ground, you assume he's been working for 10 hours. But he tells you he's actually been working for six hours. What's the explanation? Well, when he started the day, well-rested, well-fed with a sharp blade, he was cutting down two trees an hour. But over time, the rate changed. Another assumption, elements have not been affected by outside forces. We're not in a closed system. So Water erosion, we talked about how the flood drastically affected Earth's features, wind erosion. And then finally, one of the biggest assumptions that plagues these dating systems in the theory of evolution is this idea that no mature element existed at the beginning. How old did Adam and Eve look on day one? Immediate appearance of age. Uh, think about trees or bearing fruit. Daughter elements were already in rocks. Starlight. Light from distant stars, billions of light years away from us. He says, what about these billions of light years? That starlight, that light was already reaching Earth, mature at creation. So to illustrate this, suppose you see a pool that's 3,000 gallons of water, and you see a hose running at 100 gallons an hour. You assume the hose has been running for 30 hours, yet the owner tells you it's only been running for one hour. What's the explanation? There was already water in the pool to begin with. And so again, as we look at what the Bible clearly teaches about the age of dinosaurs, the age of humans, the age of the earth, Jesus made it clear that man has been around from the foundation of the world, from the beginning of creation. Paul says these things have been clearly seen by humans from the beginning of creation. So if the universe is 14 billion years old and man came on the scene 2 million years ago, 13.996 billion years later, to illustrate how far away from the foundation of the world and beginning of creation that is, think about a 24-hour clock. It's like man arrived at 23 or 11, 59, 58 p.m., two seconds before midnight. And so, unfortunately, Christians often will try to reconcile evolutionary theory and evolutionary timelines with the Genesis account of creation, and they'll do that by saying the, eight, the days 
in creation week must have been figurative, representing eons of time. But notice we're given the context of a day, evening and night, darkness and light. We know the Hebrew word yom literally means a 24-hour period. And there are additional problems with the day-age theory. If plants were created on day three and sunlight was created on day four, how did plants survive millions of years without sunlight? Insects were created on day five. How did plants that depend on pollination survive millions of years without insects? The Bible clear, clearly teaches that God created everything, including humans and dinosaurs, in six literal days. Verse 14 of Genesis 1, if days don't mean days, then what do the years mean? And so somebody says, I just don't see how man could have survived and coexisted with these fearfully great reptiles, with these dinosaurs. But look at other animals that man has lived with and continues to live with today, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And we tame them, we hunt them, we teach them to do tricks in the circus and at SeaWorld. And consider the fact that the average sized dinosaur was roughly the size of a large cow. Going back to Genesis 1, God created man with dominion over all of his creation. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And so many people ask, then what happened to the dinosaurs? Most scientists believe that a major catastrophe killed most of the dinosaurs. And there are many theories about that. Obviously, we believe that a major catastrophe did kill a lot of the dinosaurs called the flood. And we talk about the historical and physical evidence uh, confirming that dinosaur graveyards, which they'll even evolutionists will admit were caused by a flood, but they're quick to point out it must have been a local or regional flood and not admit that it was a universal global flood. But the most popular explanation often is a huge asteroid crashing into the earth. But if that's the case, why did the asteroid not kill other reptiles like turtles and alligators? And so again, I think many of the dinosaurs obviously were killed during the flood, and we have a lot of evidence of that, as we've mentioned in previous studies in these, these dinosaur graveyards. And so then the question becomes, did some dinosaurs survive the flood? We've considered historical and physical evidence indicating that humans have interacted with dinosaurs relatively recently, within the last hundred or thousand of years, which means dinosaurs must have survived the flood. And if they survived the flood, that was possible by being on Noah's Ark. And we talked about the size and capacity of the Ark, how Noah could have taken creatures when they were smaller and immature and in their youth, and that there was plenty of room on the Ark to take these creatures with him. And so then the question is, what caused the dinosaurs' ultimate demise? We don't know for sure. Maybe they weren't able to survive because the climate and conditions changed drastically after the flood. We talked about how the flood affected Earth's features greatly. Life expectancies went down. And maybe they became extinct like many other creatures have gone extinct. They went the way of the dodo bird, the filling of our planet with humans. After the flood, Genesis 9, God says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Verse 3, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. And so we've concentrated tonight on the evidences that humans and dinosaurs coexisted and how dinosaurs fit into the creation narrative. And I want to leave you with just a few uh, takeaways and application from dinosaurs. We've talked a lot about what Peter had to say concerning the flood, so we're not going to spend a lot of time reiterating that. Going back to 2 Peter chapter 3, it says God's not willing that any should perish. And so I want to point out that God doesn't want us to go extinct. God doesn't want us to perish and be destroyed. In fact, he's created us with a soul that won't go extinct. That's eternal. And so we need to not put our hope and our focus 
in the world because it's doomed. Set your affection on things above. Invest in heaven. Invest in the new heaven and the new earth. Seeing these things, seeing that the earth is doomed to extinction like the dinosaurs, what manner of person are you to be? How should you live your life? We also see that science or true science is not an enemy of the Bible. You know, I think if we're not careful, evolutionists have given many a bad taste of science. That's science falsely so-called. But Romans 1.20 essentially says that God's fingerprints are evident in science and in what he's created and what we observe all around us. Psalm 19, the heavens declare his handiwork. So obviously God wants us to study his handiwork because they teach us about him. Genesis 22, he tells Abraham, count the stars, astronomy. First Thessalonians 5.21, you essentially have a nine-word summary of the scientific method. Psalm 111 talks about studying what God's created, that those who love his work study what he's created. That's science. Job 38 and verse 33, God essentially tells Job, do you understand the laws that I've put in place that govern the universe? And again, as you study what God said to Job, when God wanted to impress upon Job his unfathomable power and sovereignty and existence, he gave him a science lesson. And you see all this science in the book of Job and the, do you know how this works and this works? Wherever you and I created this and this, you have geology and cosmology and astronomy and physics and oceanography and optics and meteorology and physics and biology and subdisciplines in biology, zoology, orology, entomology, herpetology, botany, marine biology, etc. And he impressed upon him how awesome he is by considering how awesome what he created is. God instituted the fields of sciences, scientific foreknowledge of the Bible. That's amazing. The laws of thermodynamics, various fields of science, the law of causality and biogenesis, etc. And so the Bible and true science are always in complete and perfect harmony. And so we don't need to get in these discussions and debates where we say science versus the Bible and versus God, you're not doing the Bible and God any service when you do that. You sound very unintelligent. And so we need to use these fields of science and what we see in creation and observe the way God used them with Job, the way God used dinosaurs to glorify him, to teach him. We don't need to let evolutionists and unbelievers hijack dinosaurs and the rest of God's creation to teach against special creation and the existence of God. We need to take dinosaurs and the rest of God's creation back. And so this leads to the final lesson that not only do dinosaurs glorify God, he describes them as chief in the ways of God. The Hebrews 1 verse 3 in the New Testament says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Dinosaurs glorify God, the one who made and created the dinosaurs. But when God wanted to manifest his ultimate character, his holiness, his mercy, his grace, his love, his righteousness, he didn't send T-Rex, he sent Jesus Christ. The express image of his person, the brightness of his glory. And so we've talked about these characters and events, many of which are described in Hebrews 11 and learned from them. But he transitions in chapter 12 Seeing we are surrounded by these witnesses, these examples, let's look to the ultimate example, the only perfect example, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I encourage you to do that, to look to Jesus and be prepared for his return, for this judgment, for this catastrophic event that's coming. 
And so if you need to do that, if you need to be in the image of Jesus, conform to the image of Jesus, you do that by conforming to the image of what he did to make salvation and redemption possible through baptism, Romans chapter 6. Best and most important decision you'll ever make. Make that decision before it's too late. Maybe you're here as a Christian, and maybe you need renewal. Maybe you need prayers and encouragement. Maybe you're going through problems. And again, one of the lessons we've been talking about is God is bigger. Always, period. God is bigger than your problems. He's bigger than the monsters, the boogeyman, Goliath, behemoth, Leviathan, T-Rex, and God is bigger than your sin. And God's big enough to, what Jesus did was big enough to purge you from your sins. God is big enough to wash away your sins in the blood of his son. And so if you have a spiritual need, give it to God. He's big enough to handle it. Give your questions to God. He's big enough to handle them.